This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 171st edition of the program. Today is Thursday, December 6th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal signups, all of which decided to support the show this last week, and that includes Andrew Zabuck, Eddie Chow, Ellen Beauclair Harder, Googie, John Cuneo, and Roman Baumeister. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continues to impress by fighting to stop fossil fuel shill Joe Manchin, exposing the privilege that members of Congress have and also making a fool of Mike Huckabee. Additionally, the so-called war on Christmas continues in 2018, and this time, libs want to ruin Rudolph. But don't you worry, kids, because Dave Rubin quickly came to his defense. Also on this episode, we'll give a tribute to George H.W. Bush's victims, and we'll also talk about Trump's decision to denounce his own military budget and also allow for potential destruction of marine life. We'll talk about why Scott Walker has got to be the biggest sore loser ever, why CNN is an absolute disgrace, and more 2020 speculation. And finally on the show, Ajit Pai admits what basically everyone in the country already knew all along. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Since the overwhelming majority of Americans have not served in Congress, it's really interesting to see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez kind of remove the veil and let us know the secrets about what it's like to be a member of Congress. So for example, she's been doing these live streams on Instagram where she talks about how nobody will tell you this, but everyone in Congress pretty much is walking around with stinky clothing on since they don't have time to do laundry. Um, she talks about how they receive these goodie bags as part of new orientation in Congress. And another thing that she is telling us about is a very specific reason why many members of Congress don't have the same urgency to act when it comes to healthcare, as the rest of us do. She tweeted, In my onboarding to Congress, I get to pick my insurance plan. As a waitress, I had to pay more than twice what I'd pay as a member of Congress. It's frustrating that Congress members would deny other people affordability that they themselves enjoy. It's time for Medicare for all. Also, pretty sure one Dante's circles of hell includes scrolling through a mirror hall of agonizingly similar healthcare plans like UHG Choice Master HMO 1800 versus RedGo Option Plus EPO 2000. I don't know one normal person in this country that actually enjoys open enrollment. People don't want overly complicated choice between pricey, low-quality plans. We want an affordable solution that covers our needs like the rest of the market modern world. Medicare for all. Single-payer system. Covers physical, mental, and dental care. Zero due at the point of service. Now, when she says zero due at the point of service, to clarify, what she means is 
the price should be $0 at the point of delivery, meaning when you go and see your doctor, you pay $0. You don't have to expect a bill later or at the time of your visit. It's $0. It's free at the point of delivery. And I think that that clarification is important because I've seen some headlines talking about this tweet where they will frame it as Ocasio-Cortez calls for affordable healthcare, but she's being very clear here in calling for Medicare for all, saying when I say Medicare for all, I don't mean affordable. I mean free at the point of delivery, which is what we're fighting for. Now, the reason why I'm a little bit worried about people in the media trying to frame this as her calling for affordable care is because that's one way that a lot of progressives would be turned off if she kind of did this pivot to where she once called for Medicare for all and is suddenly calling for, quote, affordable health care. So I don't necessarily know that pundits are trying to say she's calling for affordable health care, even if she is explicitly saying Medicare for all, because they want to turn her off to progressives. I don't necessarily know that their agenda is nefarious and that they're trying to do that. Maybe they just don't think about it that way. But I think that that point of clarification is really important. But getting to the context of her tweet or the substance of her tweet, rather, what she's saying here is really interesting because we really don't think about these little things. I mean, we all kind of chalk their ambivalence towards Medicare for all up to just them being corrupt and taking money from the health insurance industry. But it's also a matter of them just being comfortable, not having to worry about these things because they have affordable health care that covers them and their entire family. They don't have to go through all of these plans where they have to figure out which one is the best, what's going to cover their medication, what doctors will be in their network, if they can still even keep the same doctor if they move to a new plan. I mean, it is so obnoxious. And Normal Americans know what it's like, which is why when we talk about Medicare for all, it's so popular. It's why 70% of Americans and 52% of Republicans, according to some polls, believe Medicare for all is the right way to go because it's very difficult to spread propaganda and misinformation about an issue that Americans know about. I mean, we, we know what the American for-profit health uh, industry is like because we have to deal with them if we want healthcare in this country. So for her to kind of shed light on this and reveal how people in Congress get a really nice and affordable healthcare plan, I think this is valuable. I want her to continue to strip away the veil here and just really reveal the privileges that members of Congress have that makes them out of touch and not able to even sympathize with the American people because they think probably, you know, if I have affordable health care, then why can't everyone else just get affordable health care too? Why are they complaining? They can probably get the same thing from their jobs as we get being in Congress. But that's not true. Now, of course, because she said anything, there had to be at least one conservative hack that jumped down her throat. And this time it was Jim Hansen who said things will be much simpler when our Democratic Socialist overlords simply tell us who will live and who will die. Hashtag death panels rock. Now, the idiocy that you could fit into however many characters Twitter allows now, I think it's what, 280? It's not 140, so it's got to be like 280. The amount of idiocy in that is so stupid because if you believe that we should not have death panels, nobody thinks that in actuality, then you should definitely be, be against our for-profit healthcare system because that leads to literal death panels where if you need a particular medical procedure done, guess who has to determine if you qualify for that? Insurance companies. 
You pay the money every single month, but they still have to determine whether or not you're eligible and qualify for them to cover the cost of this procedure. This is what happens before you can even undergo treatment. You have to make sure that your insurance companies or your insurance provider rather will cover it. So it's absolutely absurd to denounce death panels, but still support our for-profit healthcare system while pretending conveniently so as if health insurance companies aren't death panels themselves. But I'm preaching to the choir, and certainly Ocasio-Cortez already knows this because that's exactly what her response was. She said, actually, we have for-profit death panels now. They are companies plus boards saying you're on your own because they won't cover a critical procedure or medicine. Maybe if the GOP stopped hiding behind this, quote, socialist rock they love to throw, they'd actually engage on issue for once. And that's exactly it. They won't. They don't know how to engage when it comes to the substance of this issue because they've lost that debate. Donald Trump wrote an op-ed basically lying about Medicare for All, even if he supported it in a way when he was just elected. Now he did a 180. But when we call him out for that, what's the response from right-wingers? Just check out a comment section of any video I do where I criticize Donald Trump. Once you get past all the usual viewers, you're going to see the orange mad bad. Mike is a cuck. Mike is an NPC. And it's because they don't know how to make an argument. And I'm glad that they don't know how to make an argument because this helps us. It's why we're winning the debate. It's why we are monopolizing discourse when it comes to Medicare for All. Every time somebody comments and calls me an NPC and calls me a faggot and calls me a soy boy, that's fine. Keep doing it because while you're doing that, I'm making an argument that's going to stick. But the reason why they don't even want to try to get into the substance and really debate the merits of Medicare for All is because they can't. Because it is a common sense policy. The only things they try to do is throw out the word socialist in order to scare people, which no longer works. And they also try to fearmonger about the cost, while Republicans just blew up the deficit by giving tax cuts to the rich, while we continue to expand our military budget, while we do everything that suggests we don't really care about the deficit and debt. They try to fearmonger about that. That's the only thing they have. So we are winning this debate. And for Ocasio-Cortez to kind of shed light on what members of Congress go through and the privilege that they have when it comes to healthcare, and to say what we've been saying that nobody would listen to about there being death panels by our for-profit industry, it's really a breath of fresh air. And I'm glad she's saying it because these are things that are relatively controversial to say because nobody's heard them before, but they're, they're factual. They're true. If you're against death panels, you should be the loudest screaming against our for-profit health insurance industry. And since progressives are against death panels, that's why we're speaking out against for-profit insurance providers. That's why we're in favor of Medicare for All and why you should be too. The Daily Mail put out an article where they misrepresented a quote from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they did it in a pretty shameless way. So, they say she compared her surprise defeat of Joe Crowley, her former opponent, to the moon landing. She said it was an accomplishment, according to them, that was comparable to the moon landing. But 
The fact remains that she didn't actually do this. The Daily Mail wrote a clickbait headline that wants you to think she said something like this. It reads, Democratic Socialist Wonderkind Ocasio-Cortez compares her election to landing on the moon and wiring America for electricity, saying we've done what we thought was impossible. So presumably, if you read that headline, you think she said, well, look, we, we beat Joe Crowley. We did what we thought was impossible. They thought the moon landing was impossible, but they did that. And I also did something impossible by defeating Joe Crowley. It's the same thing. Moon landing, defeating Joe Crowley, same thing. The thing is that she's not actually saying that. And if she did say that, you know, it'd be pretty cocky, but she didn't say that. They misrepresented the quote, and you don't even really have to go that far to find the actual quote and context for what she said, because it's in the article itself, in spite of what the headline wants you to believe. And what she was actually talking about was policy substance. She was talking about her Green New Deal plan and only cited incredible things that Americans previously did in order to dispel the notion that tackling climate change was somehow too ambitious or impossible. And here's what she said exactly, quote, we've done what we thought was impossible. We went to the moon. We electrified the nation. We established civil rights. We enfranchised the country. We dig deep and we did it. We did it when no one else thought that we could. That's what we did when so many of us won an election this year. So she's talking about what we previously thought was impossible in the context of her Green New Deal. She's saying, look, we constantly somehow managed to do things that people say is impossible. So if we thought that the moon landing was impossible, if we thought that civil rights were impossible, well... Why are we going to say that a Green New Deal is impossible? We keep proving them wrong. We've done it time and again, and we just did it again with this election. So, I mean, because she said the words election, that was reason for them to kind of strip away the context from that quote and attribute it to her basically tooting her own horn, essentially. When that's a really unfair thing to do. If you're going to cover her, you've got to give not only the context, but you've got to make it clear that this whole speech was about a Green New Deal. So obviously, this was nothing more than clickbait. Daily Mail probably knew what they were doing here. They're trying to gin up some type of controversy in order to make it seem as if Ocasio-Cortez was arrogant and, you know, cocky and maybe even narcissistic. So that's why they misrepresented her quote here. So anyone who shared this essentially made it clear that they didn't read the article itself. And former Arkansas governor and failed presidential candidate Mike Huckabee, I mean Huckabee, was one of those individuals who shared the article along with a line that was supposed to be funny, I guess, that didn't even rise to the level of a dad joke, saying, Ocasio-Cortez compares her election to moon landing. Huh. Big difference. Moon landing was lunar, not loony. <laughs> Moon landing done by people who knew what they were doing. Those who elected someone who thought there were three branches of Congress did not. Now, she saw what he said about her, and she decided to respond by ripping off his head and shitting down his neck. 
metaphorically speaking, of course, because I don't want to misrepresent what actually happened because I'm not the Daily Mail here. She said, a Green New Deal will take a level of ambition plus innovation on the scale of the moon landing. We've been done it before and can do it again. Leave the false statements to Sarah Huckabee. She's much better at it. Also, you haven't been a governor of any state for 10 plus years now. <laughs> How's it taste, motherfucker? So not only did she take the time to dunk on Mike Huckabee, she dunked on his daughter as well. And that's a sensitive subject for him. You know, for obvious reasons. It's his daughter, and everyone hates her because she is a serial compulsive liar. But she dunked on him and her, and she kind of did a little jab at the end there to let him know just how irrelevant he is. That was great. Ocasio-Cortez is great to me because she is like a lot of millennials perceived to be naive and in over her head people say this about me as well doing political commentary i mean you have to be old which is what people believe to have any wisdom or anything but she's showing that she actually knows what she's talking about and she's not gonna fuck around if you're gonna talk shit you better be prepared to get owned because i think that it wasn't even a question even people who liked mike huckabee if you go to the replies under his tweet it was clear they know he got clowned by Ocasio-Cortez. So these old politicians, these irrelevant politicians, quite frankly, because Mike Huckabee is irrelevant, what they try to do is they try to own the libs or trigger the libs, whatever they're doing nowadays. I don't know what it is, but they're trying to own the libs by being condescending and arrogant and talking down to liberals, saying that they are stupid. And most of the time, it's female liberals. It's young liberals. So they think, oh, this is going to be easy. This is a cakewalk. Let me show these dipshits what it's really like, you know, in politics. But they end up falling on their fucking face. Mike Huckabee face planted here in an attempt to make Ocasio-Cortez look dumb. Look, <laughs> Fox News has been trying it, Mike Huckabee, and they're only boosting her profile and making her incredibly popular. So because conservatives are doing what they can to make Ocasio-Cortez a media phenomenon, the rest of the media is trying to compete with conservative outlets, and they're doing what they can to kind of boost her profile. But what they're realizing is that this is backfiring tremendously because this is someone who's popular. This is someone who's representing the people. She speaks for millennials. She speaks for me. So you're not going to make her unpopular. You're helping her. So keep it up. I'm never mad when they go out of their way to criticize Ocasio-Cortez, even if what they're doing is really nefarious, even if they're disgusting and trying to smear her as someone who's unintelligent, because this is all working out in her favor. It's giving her more power, because having that media coverage and attention, even if it's negative, to a degree, it still gives her a little bit more political power and influence, and that's really important if we want someone fighting for us. So Keep it up, because you are not helping your cause, and Mike Huckabee, of all people, shouldn't imply anyone else's loony when he himself is one of the biggest idiotic evangelical Republicans in the country. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continues to make waves within the Democratic Party because rather than just allowing them to continue to do business as usual and isolate the base in order to appeal to donors... She's actually doing something that few Democrats 
want to do. She's holding a mirror up to them, and she's forcing them to be introspective. Rather than doing a spirited defense for fellow Democrats, she's forcing them to rethink the way that they do things. And her latest target is Joe Manchin, because she's speaking out about the fact that he should not be at the top of a committee when he's a shill for the oil and gas industry. Now, as Ida Chavez of The Intercept reports, incoming Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is troubled by the prospect of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a staunch ally of the fossil fuel industry, becoming the top Democrat on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. I have concerns, and that's why I say that our issues are not just left and right, but they're top and down, Ocasio-Cortez said at a Friday press conference held outside the Capitol. I have concerns over the senator's chairmanship just because I do not believe that we should be financed by the industries that we are supposed to be legislating and regulating and touching with our legislation. Ocasio-Cortez added that the vast majority of Americans agree that lawmakers should not be taking money from the industries they regulate and the fact that they continue to do so contributes to the disconnect between everyday people and Washington. But in D.C., that's a controversial opinion, she said. I don't believe it's just a party issue. It's really about an issue of independence. It's really about an issue of objectivity in our legislation, she continued. Manchin has the inside track to take over the ranking member slot currently held by Washington Senator Maria Cantwell, but liberal and environmental groups are horrified and would like anyone but Manchin to get the position, Politico reported this week. The conservative Democrat also voted to confirm for former Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt and recorded a 2010 campaign ad in which he shot a mock copy of the Democrats' cap-and-trade climate bill. According to OpenSecrets.org, Manchin's re-election campaign received $156,240 from the oil and gas industry. Manchin also reports earnings each year from Energy Systems, Inc., a coal brokerage company he helped run before entering politics in his Senate financial disclosures. So something that she said in this article here really resonated with me. She said that saying this is controversial in D.C. because I say it all the time. You think it probably. People who are regulating a particular industry should not be receiving financial contributions from that industry because that obviously poses a conflict of interest. It biases them. They're supposed to be protecting us from that particular agency, regulating that industry to make sure that they don't do anything that's harmful to the American public. But they can't be objective in overseeing particular industries if they are taking money from those industries because that is a corrupting influence. And we don't have to just speculate about how corrosive money in politics is because a 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page found that when you look at policy outcomes, normal everyday Americans have a statistically insignificant impact. But when you look at the preferences of business interests and economic elites, well, they actually have a pretty substantial influence, which indicates that we don't necessarily live in a democracy. Rather, we live in an oligarchy if you think that democracy should reflect the values of the people. So 
it should definitely be the case that someone who is a shill for the industry, like Joe Manchin, should not oversee a committee which is supposed to regulate this industry. I mean, again, what she said there makes so much sense because it's controversial only to people in that DC elitist bubble, but to people like you and I, this is obviously a no-brainer. And another thing that I'll say about this is primarying corporate Democrats really pays off. It absolutely pays off. And this is evidence because we put someone in Congress that reflects our political ideology, that reflects our core values, who's one of us, who came from the bottom. And look at how she represents us. She knows she has a mandate from the people and she is basically performing above my expectations. Because when it comes to politicians, I don't think any of us are unreasonable to expect to be disappointed. And certainly, I wasn't expecting to be disappointed by Ocasio-Cortez, but I tried to temper my expectations given that I've been excited about politicians before and been let down, but she's overperforming with regard to my expectations, at least to this point. And it really reassures us that, you know, this desire and this bid to take over the Democratic Party not only is it worthwhile, but it's working. Because she may just be one person, but think of the impact that she's having. Think of how influential she is on American political discourse when it comes to the issue of climate change, when it comes to issues like healthcare. This one person has had a tremendous impact. And I don't like to say tremendous because it's a word that sounds very Trumpian, but she really has been a force in Washington, D.C., and she hasn't even officially started serving yet. I mean, <laughs> the next session in Congress hasn't officially begun yet, but she's already having this huge influence. Imagine if we just get like one or two more Ocasio-Cortezes in Congress. I mean, the great thing is that there are already other individuals that ideologically agree with her, that aligned with her on these issues. Rashida Tlaib, Deb Holland, Ilhan Omar. But imagine if we get a few more, the impact that that would have. I mean, this is this is something that it's working. Even if we won't likely primary 100% of Democrats that need to be primaried, just seeing how influential they are when there's only a handful of them in Congress, it shows that we, we're doing okay as progressives. You know, I think that we are winning the debate and um, I'm just, I'm enthusiastic about the fact that Going into 2019, we have people in Congress that are looking out for us, that are saying the things that we've been screaming about, yelling about how Joe Manchin is a shill. We said it, and now someone in Congress besides Bernie Sanders is saying it, and um, it's a breath of fresh air. We're saying Merry Christmas again. It is officially my favorite time of year. It's the Christmas season. And specifically for those of you who don't live in the United States, this is when us liberals team up and we launch an all-out assault on the holiday. At least that's what Fox News and Republicans want you to think. But in actuality, we're celebrating just like everyone else. I mean, I've got the hat, I've got my ugly Christmas sweater, and I've got the tree just for this segment. But nonetheless, Fox News has been sounding the alarms for years now about how liberals want to ruin Christmas. The evidence being that liberals think people should maybe say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas, or that Starbucks changed the color of their cups to red. And this year, 
to no one's surprise, it's absolutely no different. So this time, we're going to hear from Coke sellout Dave Rubin, who's going to join the chorus of idiocy by going on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News and discussing how libs are ruining Rudolph now. Even Rudolph. Is nothing sacred? Dave, as I'm watching that, all of a sudden I had this kind of panic feeling and thinking, maybe I fell for an elaborate, ironic prank from HuffPo, and then I realized, no, because they don't have a sense of humor. I mean, but reassure me, yeah. this is real, right? Tucker, very quickly on the last segment, I swear to you, I thought you were the highest paid man in television. I am shocked and I'm going to, you know, I don't get I don't get paid for these appearances, but I'm going to mail you a check for somewhere between 15 and 20 dollars. OK, that aside, I appreciate yes, that, this is. Yeah, you got it, my friend. Listen, these these puff piece of Huffington Poe. I mean, look, these pieces that these that these authors, whatever they are, journalists that they write. These are not pieces of journalism. It's so much easier to destroy and than to create. If you're watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and think it's about racism and misogyny and the patriarchy and the rest of it, well, you can find that stuff everywhere. If you look back at anything, and that's, that's what people really need to understand when these pieces come out and then you start looking at something that you used to love or that used to have a wonderful message about the holiday and giving and being accepted and all of those things, that they're trying to take that away from you. And it's not like they stop with one thing. Thing, right? They find something, they kind of destroy that, and they'll move on to everything else that we love. So, you know, eventually they'll move on to sitcoms that we love, whether it's Seinfeld for, you know, exactly. doing something they've done, or, or Friends, or whatever else it is. They'll go for cartoons, they've gone for Bugs Bunny. I mean, they will literally go for a sunset. Think of whoever's watching this right now, think of something you love that brings you a sense of peace and decency, and they will somehow link it to the patriarchy and the rest of their politically correct nonsense and we just need to we need to realize that as i said earlier it's easier to destroy than create well and that's, that's the what they're smartest. just going to so keep just, doing and i think what right we there? have to do is create that's such a smart point what are we creating what is being created in this moment of destruction right now do you uh, make me feel well better. that's what i'm worried about yeah. yeah, well, that's what I'm worried about, because there is some legitimacy that some of the things happening in the country and in the world should be destroyed at some yes. level. Look, we've got major problems in academia. We've got major right, we problems want some change. in the media. I agree. Absolutely. So we want some change, but but anyone can burn anything down. And the question is, we've put up so much goodness in the world. The United States and, and Western world has put up so much goodness related to freedom. We live in the freest country ever. We can do whatever we want in this country. And if your job all day long is to write pieces that actually destroy the stories that we're built on, and then don't offer an alternative. I mean, exactly. that's the thing. They never offer an alternative. Or if they do, it usually is about power to the state, which is actually dystopian, not utopian. So that's what we have to watch out for. And, you know, it's unfortunate because they write these things. And then, you know, yeah. guys like us, we feel like we have to respond to them because no, we don't want to. But I'm glad being that we did because you just issued a challenge, I think, to the rest of us, which is create. You know, we, we need to create. Lawrence. Let's create, oh, wait, man. Let's create. So just watching that, you might instinctively feel as if what you just saw was nothing more than stupidity in action and being broadcasted to millions of Americans, but it gets dumber as you get more of the context. I assure you of that. Now, what's great is that the notion that elements of this cartoon could somehow be problematic was so absurd to Tucker that he was worried that he was somehow being duped by, quote, an elaborate or ironic prank from HuffPost until he realized that couldn't be the case because, quote, they don't have a sense of humor. 
Well, we're going to see why he's wrong about that in a minute, because the actual article they're talking about was not meant to be taken seriously. In fact, it wasn't even an article or an editorial at all, so he's wrong. But I want to get to what Dave Rubin says here, because he really makes this argument that nothing really is sacred anymore to these goddamn liberals. They're going to ruin everything. They're going to look for misogyny and homophobia and white supremacy where it doesn't even exist. I mean, something as benign as a cartoon can't possibly be problematic, can it? If you look back at cartoons from the early 1900s, they were pretty problematic to say the least. So of course we can look back as we progress as a society and see that maybe some things weren't as great as we once thought they were. I mean, if you watch a bunch of comedies from the mid-2000s, some of them were incredibly homophobic. It's just that they passed it off as comedy, so nobody really noticed. But I mean, we're just becoming a little bit more cognizant of these things because culture has changed. Pointing that out doesn't make me an overly politically correct SJW. It just makes me an observer of a society that is continuously evolving, both socially and culturally. I mean, these norms are changing, and they're changing significantly pretty rapidly because that's what happens when you live in a modern society. And guess what? What? I'm glad that norms change. Dave Rubin should be really thankful that norms and uh, societal values change, given that he is a gay man who will remind you about that every five minutes. But the underlying implication is that liberals in criticizing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, they're somehow trying to take that away from you. They want to get it banned from television, but that's not, that's not correct at all. It's just that political norms, social norms, cultural norms evolve. That's it, and they're just pointing it out. They're saying, oh, wow, maybe Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the characters in that show, were a little bit more asshole than I originally remembered. And that's essentially what they were saying, but more on what Dave Rubin says here. He adds, I mean, they will literally go for sunset. Think for whoever's watching this now. Think of something you love that brings you a sense of peace and decency, and they will somehow link it to the patriarchy and the rest of their politically correct nonsense, and we need to realize it's easier to destroy than create. So I want you conservatives watching Fox News right now to close your eyes. Think about something that's precious to you, something that you hold the most dear in your heart. Now, also imagine a liberal. Imagine them coming in and destroying that thing you hold most dear to your heart. I mean, Dave, if you're going to try to fearmonger about the opposition, you've got to be at least a little bit more reasonable and more subtle in your demonization. Otherwise, you're going to come off as a hack, and that's exactly what you came off as. He's not even trying to be a good propagandist here. He's just saying, liberals basically hate everything you like, and that's why you should be against liberals. I mean, you've got to try harder than that. How are you going to actually convince people that they should hate liberals if you're not even giving them a valid reason? I mean, Sunset, Dave? You think we're against Sunset? <laughs> what a fucking dumbass. Uh, look, Dave... <laughs> This is so stupid. Um, I mean, I knew that the war on Christmas controversy was inevitable. You know, the minute, you know, uh, December rolled around, I was just waiting. And they're getting dumber each year. I thought that the Starbucks cup controversy was probably the lowest of the low in terms of how stupid political discourse gets with regard to the supposed war on Christmas. But this is definitely something that is dumber. And it gets dumber when you actually know 
about the article they're talking about. So the question really is, what did this Huffington Post editor say about Rudolph that got Dave Rubin's panties in a bunch? Because Dave Rubin implied throughout this segment multiple times that this editor was trying to promote the idea that Rudolph was bad. Well, let's actually look at the article. If you go to the comedy section of Huffington Post, you'll find the article in question is titled, Viewers Noticed Some Very Disturbing Details in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, where the author doesn't necessarily editorialize, but instead shares tweets about the cartoon that he found humorous. So he saw that Rudolph was trending, he looked on Twitter at some of these tweets, and he shared the tweets that he found funny. In fact, he actually states, quote, Some people joked that they noticed a few things in the Christmas classic that they didn't always spot or simply ignored when they saw it years ago. Here are some of those humorous observations. I will never not tweet this when Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is trending. Roses are red. Elf practice is avoidable. Deviation from the norm will be punished unless it's exploitable. Watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the moral of the story I've learned since watching it as a kid, people are dicks until they need something from you. My saddest takeaway from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is how mean and dismissive Santa is. Really, Santa? Nothing says holiday spirit quite like dissecting Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and realizing almost everyone is an ass. Comet legit encouraged bullying and exclusion. I can even buy into his father being terrible, but Santa? That's messed up. Hashtag Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So this is what all of the commotion was about. Dave Rubin and Tucker Carlson were responding to outrage over this article when it was nothing more than the author sharing funny tweets about Rudolph from people who were making fun of the cartoon. And it wasn't just that these were all political tweets. The author even shared some apolitical tweets. For example, somebody said they refused to Google Burl Ives because they don't want to know what he actually looks like because that would ruin their image of him as the snowman. It also included a tweet from someone who poked fun at liberals, saying that Yukon Cornelius was the first hipster. But because some people pointed out how mean the characters were, how misogynistic Rudolph's dad was, and how Rudolph was being bullied, that was enough for Tucker Carlson and Dave Rubin to get together to deem these tweets controversy and put out this idiotic segment about how SJWs ruin everything. And now they're coming after your beloved Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoons. Now, I'm not even 100% sure if Dave Rubin entirely understood what it was that liberals were supposedly offended by, because most of the outrage I've seen came from a tweet HuffPost made where they shared a video of the cartoon and they said, the holiday TV classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is seriously problematic. Now, you'd think, based on what they tweeted there, that this was the source for all of the outrage, but really... All they did was do more of what the article I showed you did, share more tweets from people. And they don't even necessarily criticize the cartoon as a whole for being politically incorrect or anything like that. They just simply go on to say what we all kind of thought when we watched it again, that the characters were a lot shittier than we may have remembered as children. So it was kind of a narrative criticism. It was a critique of the characters, not 
the cartoon as a whole, and there were some specific examples that they pointed out, like how Clarice's dad was bigoted towards Rudolph because he didn't want his daughter to be seen in public with a reindeer with a red nose, and some people speculated about whether or not this was a parable for racism and interracial dating, which honestly doesn't seem too far off to me, but the reason why I question whether or not Dave Rubin understood why liberals were supposedly offended is because he kept referencing the author and implied that this was a written article that they were responding to that was trying to gin up outrage when in actuality, as I stated, most conservatives were responding to a tweet from HuffPost and Tucker even played the video that HuffPost tweeted out alongside them for the entirety of their discussion. So either Dave Rubin actually did take issue with the article I read to you that was in the comedy section of HuffPost or he didn't even know that they were supposed to be talking about the video that was posted to HuffPost's Twitter account, and he decided to just utilize the generic right-wing talking points he typically uses when discussing issues of this nature, and he brought up political correctness, the outrage machine, and what have you. Regardless, he didn't even respond to a specific example of supposed outrage, which leads me to believe he's just jumping on the bandwagon here when he clearly doesn't feel passionate or give a shit about this issue at all. And understand the irony here. They're the ones who are saying liberals look for controversy and everything, but here they are looking for controversy where there was none to be found. And their agenda is crystal clear. They're doing everything they can to find examples of liberal outrage so they can prop up that great SJW boogeyman and claim that it's an existential threat to mankind. That's what they're trying to do. Meanwhile, their side, the side they do propaganda for, actually does pose a real existential threat to mankind. Donald Trump and the Republican Party, who get paid to deny climate science. That's the real threat. But what they want you to think is that these SJWs, they ruin everything and now they're trying to ruin Rudolph. Well, nobody here is saying that Rudolph should be banned. These people are saying, well, you know, Rudolph is a little bit different than how I remembered it. There's a little bit more dickheadedness from the characters there's some misogyny from rudolph's dad and uh yeah it's not how i remembered it casually pointing this out is not controversy but fox news in the way that they claim we always do they try to look for controversy because them talking about the supposed outrage mas machine not only is that part of the outrage machine that they denounce but it's them propping up their side, saying, look, Republicans care about the issues, liberals care about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Aren't they silly? Let's bring on Dave Rubin to talk about how liberals are going to be against Sunset. They see misogyny and patriarchy in Sunset. Yeah, we see controversy everywhere, even where it's not. It's like we're looking for it. It's almost as if you're looking for it, Dave Rubin and Tucker Carlson. I'm sure the irony went right over their heads. While virtually everyone in the country, namely elites in the media and in Washington, D.C., are paying tribute to George H.W. Bush right now, who passed at the age of 94, I want to take the time to pay tribute to a different set of people who passed away. Because it's really easy to reminisce about all of the good things that he's done, and certainly he's done his share of good. And he was by no means the worst president, even in modern history, because I think that that award goes to his son. But him passing doesn't change the fact that 
He was a war criminal, and he should have spent his last days in a prison cell because of all of the atrocities that he committed. Now, it makes me uncomfortable to speak that way about someone who just passed away a couple of days ago, but that doesn't change the fact that this individual is responsible for thousands of deaths, both direct and indirect deaths that he caused. And he should have been prosecuted and imprisoned for what he did. And I'm not even going to pretend like I could give you an exhaustive list of all the horrible things or the good things that he's done, because that's that's almost impossible for a short podcast. But there have been political scientists and authors and investigative journalists who have produced countless documentaries and books about this man's true legacy that you're not hearing about in the mainstream media. So we're going to go through some of the reasons why this individual is a war criminal. And what we're going to do ultimately is pay tribute to his victims because there are tens of thousands that were negatively affected, whose families are still suffering till this day because of what this individual did as president. So as Mehdi Hassan of The Intercept reports, under Bush Sr., the U.S. dropped a whopping 88,500 tons of bombs on Iraq and Iraqi-occupied Kuwait, many of which resulted in horrific civilian casualties. In February of 1991, for example, a U.S. strike on an air raid shelter in the Amaraya neighborhood of Baghdad killed at least 408 Iraqi civilians. According to Human Rights Watch, the Pentagon knew the Amaraya facility had been used as a civil defense shelter during the Iran-Iraq war and yet had attacked without warning. It was, concluded HRW, a serious violation of the laws of war. U.S. bombs also destroyed essential Iraqi civilian infrastructure, from electricity generating and water treatment facilities to food processing plants and flour mills. This was no accident. As Barton Gelman of the Washington Post reported in June of 1991, some targets, especially late in the war, were bombed primarily to create post-war leverage over Iraq, not to influence the course of the conflict itself. Planners now say their intent was to destroy or damage valuable facilities that Baghdad could not repair without foreign assistance. Because of these goals, damage to civilian structures and interests invariably described by briefers during the war as collateral and unintended was sometimes neither. Got that? The Bush administration deliberately targeted civilian infrastructure for leverage over Saddam Hussein. How is that not terrorism? As a Harvard Public Health team concluded in June 1991, less than four months after the end of the war, the destruction of Iraqi infrastructure had resulted in acute malnutrition and epidemic levels of cholera and typhoid. By January of 1992, Beth Osborne DuPont, a demographer with the U.S. Census Bureau, was estimating that Bush's Gulf War had caused the deaths of 158,000 Iraqis, including 13,000 immediate civilian deaths and and 70,000 deaths from the damage done to electricity and sewage treatment plants. DuPont's numbers contradicted the Bush administration's, and she was threatened by her superiors with dismissal for releasing, quote, false information. So let's just pause for a moment here and isolate one number, the 13,000 civilian casualties caused by his war. 13,000 deaths is a difficult number for the human brain to 
grasp. So just think of one individual. Think of the impact that that had on that person's family after they were killed. A foreign invader killed a member of their family. They were grief-stricken. They felt pain. Not to mention, they were dealing with a crisis caused by the United States in their country. Problems with sewage and electricity. So they couldn't even take the time to grieve because they were trying to save their own lives. They were dealing with an ongoing crisis that George H.W. Bush caused. Now, think of that one example or anecdote that I'm speculating about and multiply that by 13,000. It's a level of sadness and just pure pain and suffering that is really, it's incomprehensible. But that was not all because there was the infamous highway of death situation that isn't often discussed where George H.W. Bush ordered the United States military to corner and slaughter members of the Iraqi army who were actually retreating. They were headed back to Iraq and this led to an estimated 2,000 deaths of Iraqi soldiers who were no longer battling. Again, they were retreating and photographer Kenneth Jarek was positive that this photo that I'm showing you of a charged soldier that he took would change people's minds about the war. It would turn public opinion. But it later became known as the war photo no one would publish since the media refused to display it. Until this day, we don't really view that war in the way it should be viewed. And not to mention, I am leaving out a really important detail, how Bush got us into that, into that war. Because much like his son, he lied us into a war in the Middle East. The fact of Saddam Hussein's aggression is beyond dispute. But what about the campaign to commit American troops to liberate Kuwait? To get Americans, perhaps any people, to support a war in a place millions barely heard of, certain buttons must be pressed. In the run-up to the Gulf War, one image, one presence touched American hearts and minds like no other. It was this 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl identified only as Nayira. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, my name is Nayira and I just came out of Kuwait. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators. took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. President Bush repeated the incubator story at least 10 times in the following weeks. Babies pulled from incubators and scattered like firewood across the floor. There was plenty of evidence of Iraqi brutality, but the incubator story became almost a rallying cry. Where did the story come from? We can't answer that. We can't tell you about Naira. She was no ordinary witness. She's a member of the Kuwaiti royal family, related to the Emir of Kuwait. And when she testified, her father was sitting close by. He's Sheikh Saud Nasir al-Sabah, Kuwait's ambassador to the United States. Nayer lives with her family in Washington, D.C. We can only speculate on the effect of the mysterious Nayer's testimony. Afraid to use her real name in case... We can't say for certain it was part of a massive campaign by the public relations firm of Hill and Knowlton to, in their words, get Kuwait's story out. Others might call it the selling of the war.
The troubling part of the story is the belief by the public relations industry that with enough access, enough money, and knowing which buttons to push, war can be marketed, just like soft drinks and toothpaste. Now to give you some additional context, Americans did not support this war until this entire elaborate scheme, this PR event, was concocted. And this is what got them to turn public opinion. And once he felt as if he had a mandate to do war, we hid photos of atrocities that the American military committed with the direction of George H.W. Bush to keep public support maintained for that war. And I'm only talking about what he did in the Middle East. I'm not even telling you about what he did in Panama that led to thousands of civilians dying, being killed by the U.S. military. We didn't even talk about the revelations that came to light in the bombshell documentary, The Panama Deception, where the United States military was actually doing dangerous weapons tests in Panama, and they were killing civilians. And again, I can't even get into all of these war crimes with the level of specificity that they deserve, because there's too many to count. So, those are just some basic examples as to how George H.W. Bush was directly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. But he was also indirectly responsible for the deaths of people here in America. Because when he was president, there was an HIV and AIDS crisis that affected the gay community. And since he was overtly homophobic, much like his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, he chose to not act, resulting in tens of thousands of people dying every single year. And he gave one speech on the subject. That was it. One speech was all that gay Americans got when activists were begging him to speak up. They were protesting at the White House. They were literally spreading ashes of gay Americans that passed away on the White House in order to get him to speak out, in order to get him to take action. Now, he eventually, thankfully, signed a bill that funded AIDS treatment and prohibited discrimination against gay Americans through the American with Disabilities Act, but this came only after he initially cut funding for AIDS research and banned people with HIV from entering the United States. So to say that his response to the AIDS crisis at a time when it was getting worse was inadequate, I mean, that would be a gross understatement because he didn't want to take action because he was a homophobe. He was worried about upsetting his right-wing base, so he felt as if it was more convenient to just ignore the fact that thousands of gay Americans were dying every single year rather than taking action until basically the outpouring was so severe that he couldn't ignore it any longer. And I'm barely scratching the surface because I didn't even tell you about his racism. I didn't even get to his decision to pardon the individuals that were involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. I didn't even tell you about the numerous women that came forward and alleged that he groped them, including one who was 16 years old. I mean, his legacy is so unbelievably problematic. You could write multiple books about it, and people have, but at the same time, People in the mainstream media are fawning praise over him when we need to take a sober look at him so that way we can learn from what he did wrong and make sure that we learn from history and right those wrongs and not do what he did. But because in America, we're so eager to deify American presidents, 
this is what happens. We sweep everything that they did under the rug that was bad, and we pretend as if it doesn't happen. And all it takes is time. And then we rehabilitate them, and we parade them around as if they are supposedly good people, as if they're American heroes. That's what we're doing to George W. Bush, who's going on The Ellen Show and um, is getting these cutesy articles written about him, about how he's sharing candy with Michelle Obama. And I bet this will be what we do in eight years after Trump is out of office. We'll say, look at this Republican and how bad he or she is when juxtaposed with Trump. Trump really was, you know, we didn't like him at the time, but I mean, he wasn't as bad as this individual. This is what we do in America. We rehabilitate the legacy of war criminals because it makes us feel better about ourselves because we don't want to be introspective and look at all of the horrible things our tax dollars funded and look at all the horrible things our presidents who we elected did to civilians and innocent lives across the world. So while we watch our media fawn over him and worship him essentially because he was polite, unlike Donald Trump, I'm going to leave you with some words from Jeremy Scahill, who says, George H.W. Bush was an unrepentant war criminal. May his many victims across the globe rest in peace. And since so many people in the media are going out of their way to honor him and pay tribute to him, since that's already being done, on this show, we're going to take the time to pay tribute to all of his victims and honor them for the suffering that they endured at the hands of this war criminal. So we'll end this segment with a moment of silence for those people. So I woke up today to something that I initially thought was a mirage because Donald Trump put out a tweet that I agreed with. He called America's bloated military budget crazy and he couldn't be more correct about that. I am certain that at some time in the future, President Xi and I, together with President Putin of Russia, will start talking about a meaningful halt to what has become a major uncontrollable arms race. The U.S. spent $716 billion this year. Crazy. So, just like a broken clock, every once in a while, Donald Trump will accidentally be correct about something. And he is correct about this here. Our bloated military budget is asinine. It is, I don't know how to describe it as anything but crazy. The only problem is that Donald Trump, as president, is someone who has constantly called for the increase in our already bloated military budget. As a candidate, he lied about our military being depleted, which is just factually and demonstrably false. And the reason why he said our military was depleted was so that way he could galvanize support for an even more bigger bloated uh, military budget. And as you can see by this graph from the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, it shows that the United States is not only the biggest spender on the military in the world, but we actually spend more than the next seven biggest spenders 
combined. And most of the names of countries on this list are our allies. So to say that we're spending more than we need to be spending is absolutely an understatement. And when you look at this pie chart from the great Andrea Witte of ConnectTheDotsUSA.com, you can see just how much money the military is eating away at our total budget. So the red represents mandatory spending, and the yellow is our discretionary spending budget, which is what Congress actually has the ability to adjust every year. So if we wanted to, we could reallocate resources from the military budget, which is a pretty big slice of our discretionary spending, into health, science, and education. But as you can see, the military takes up a gigantic portion of our discretionary budget, which accounts for nearly a third of total spending overall. So Trump is right. It's absolutely crazy to continue spending this much on the military. It's it's insane, to be honest. But what's also crazy to me is that as president, you acknowledge the problem, but yet don't do anything to fix this. If you acknowledge the problem, then it only logically follows that you're going to propose a solution. So maybe he's going to actually propose a slimmer military budget. But it's Donald Trump, and next week he'll probably do a 180 and say we should have an increase in military spending because this is kind of what he's been doing throughout his career. But think about this. Think of the possibilities. If we cut military spending in half, at a minimum, we'd be able to effectively wipe out homelessness in America and fund free college, and we'd still have money left over. We could allocate that money to education, science, healthcare. But instead, odds are the military-industrial complex who has Donald Trump by the balls will not allow him to do that because they donate to Donald Trump and they expect a return on that investment. The investment being campaign contributions to Donald Trump. So if you think they're going to allow him to do something like cut the military, well, they're going to probably put up a, f a fight, throw a fit, and threaten to withhold funding from his 2020 campaign if he does this. And it's Donald Trump, so seeing that he lacks a spine, I'm assuming he'd cave immediately. But I welcome a challenge. I welcome Donald Trump proving me wrong because I would absolutely love to stand corrected if it means we'll be better off as a country. I'd love to come out and say I was wrong about something that Donald Trump did. He proved me wrong if it means that we'll all be better off. But time and again, Donald Trump has showed that even when I try to be kind to him and give him credit where it's due, he almost immediately fucks whatever progress up that he tries to make. I mean, think of the Korea situation. Even if it's the case that we're technically better off because he's no longer exchanging threats with Kim Jong-un via Twitter, well, what happened to the supposed denuclearization of North Korea? They're not reducing nuclear weapons. That fell through. Now, again, I'm glad that he's not threatening them anymore. I think we're better off. But in terms of getting a peace deal, he wasn't able to pull that off. And again, to be fair to him, this is an ongoing process, so maybe he'll be able to do that. But the preliminary result of that does not look very good. So he's just, he's a failure. He doesn't know how to not fail because that's all he's been throughout his life. And he's desperately wanted us to think that he's not a failure. I mean, think about this. 
he wants us to think, and he's always wanted us to think, that he's this self-made businessman when he inherited wealth from his father. Wealth that was mostly not taxed because he did tax evasion before his father died to basically make sure that all that, um, the wealth that his father would be passing down was not taxed. I mean, his father had to come in and bail out a casino that he had from going <laughs> bankrupt. If you can't keep a casino afloat, then you're just a colossal failure. And Donald Trump has proven time and again that he's a colossal failure. But again, before I shit on him too much, he's saying something correct here. So step one, that's, that's good, right? Before you can attend to a problem, you've got to admit that you have a problem to begin with. So he's acknowledging a problem. The question is, will he take action? If I had to guess, I'd say probably not. But again, I would welcome him proving me wrong. So obviously, the issue of climate change is pretty salient among the American people right now because just a couple of weeks ago, the United States government released a multi-agency report with 13 government agencies saying that if we don't act on climate change, not only will that crush the U.S. economy, but it will kill thousands of people every single year. And shortly before that, we had the IPCC report give us basically 12 years to act if we want to avoid catastrophic levels of climate change. And Donald Trump decided to do something that would further harm the environment, specifically marine life. Now, as Hillary Hansen of HuffPost reports, the Trump administration announced Friday that it approved requests from five companies to survey for oil and gas under the floor of the Atlantic Ocean using a process some scientists have warned is disastrous for marine life. The authorizations from the National Marine Fisheries Service allow companies to incidentally but not intentionally harass marine mammals while using seismic air guns to map fossil fuel reserves, according to a statement from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The new authorizations don't necessarily guarantee that testing will occur since the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management still needs to issue its own permits approving the process, according to U.S. News and World Report. However, the agency's acting director said earlier this year that he expects to give the okay. Seismic testing involves sending extremely loud bursts of air through the water to produce shock waves. Conservationists say the loud air blasts, which occur every 10 to 12 seconds, can go on for weeks to months, are majorly disruptive to animals like sea turtles, dolphins, and the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale. Marine scientist Matthew Hulzenbeck of environmental group Oceana previously compared the effect to dynamite going off in your living room or in your backyard every 10 seconds for days to weeks at a time. The NOAA notes that various precautions will be put into place to mitigate harm to marine life. Those steps include halting surveys when certain species are observed nearby and prohibiting testing in some regions during certain months of the year, like during calving season for right whales, Bloomberg notes. But critics say the precautions are simply not enough. For instance, while blasts will be prohibited within 56 miles of endangered marine mammals, Oceana campaign director Diane Hoskins told National Geographic that sound from the blasts can travel up to 2,000 miles underwater. So this just shows that he has no regard for the environment. He has no regard for marine life. He just doesn't care. 
he thinks that profits for fossil fuel industries is more important. And why are we letting fossil fuel companies destroy the planet still? Why are we letting this happen? Why is the government subsidizing oil and gas when renewable technology is the way of the future? Wind, solar, hydro, these are things we should be subsidizing. But instead, the government gives subsidies to oil and gas industries. It's corporate welfare. And I'm saying why, but really this is a rhetorical question because you and I both know the answer to this. This is all done because corruption. Politicians receive campaign contributions from oil and gas companies. And additionally, they're lobbied. I mean, these companies spend tens of millions lobbying every single year. And as a result, the politicians do their bidding. That bidding being allowing them to basically wreak havoc on the planet. So we all have to deal with the cost of them ruining the planet. Also, that way their CEOs can fatten their pocketbooks even more. I think that it's really time for liberals to start thinking boldly and really being a little bit more aggressive in how we talk about the fossil fuel industry. And in a discussion with Kyle Kalinske on The Michael Brooks Show, Michael Brooks basically said, you know, if I were in control, I would nationalize the oil industry. And I 1000% sign on to this. Even if that's not feasible, if liberals start talking about the oil and gas industry in this way, because that's something that is necessary, I think that that would scare the shit out of them. Because if you start hearing echoes in American discourse about nationalization of the oil industry, which has been done in countries before, I think that that would scare them. I mean, maybe it wouldn't scare them too much, but we've got to at least try to move the Overton window back to within the realm of reason because these oil and gas companies, they're allowed to do anything and our government not only lets them get away with it, but we embolden them. We give them subsidies. But getting back to Donald Trump, because I don't want to divert attention away from him too much, I'm starting to think that Donald Trump isn't an immoral individual. He's just an amoral human being. He doesn't necessarily weigh out, you know, the morality of any of the decisions that he makes. He doesn't think, is this right? Is this wrong? Uh, what will be the ripple effects? You know, what consequences will result from my actions? And then what waves of consequences will follow that, you know, were caused by those actions that I took. I mean, he just, he doesn't think about these things. He just acts based on instinct. And to be fair to Donald Trump, he's not the first president who is allowing companies to ruin the planet for increased profits, because what did Obama do? He opened up the Arctic for drilling. So understand that this is a trend that Donald Trump is continuing. But I think that we have to have someone in the White House who doesn't just acknowledge the importance of climate change and the urgency with which we need to act, but someone who is going to take bold action. Not just some mealy-mouthed corporate Democrat who's going to pay lip service to us. We need bold, revolutionary, New Deal level of action. And we all know who that person is. The only person who's come up with a bold plan, who's signed on to Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, and that individual is Bernie Sanders. I don't even have to tell you. So um, I will be doing everything to fight for Bernie in 2020 because 
it's not just that America depends on him winning, the planet depends on him winning because I truly believe he'd be a world leader on this issue. In the state of Wisconsin, union-busting coke plant Scott Walker recently lost his bid for governor again, and he was defeated by Democrat Tony Evers. But in part, thanks to gerrymandering, it wasn't a sweep because Republicans will still maintain control of their state's legislature. Now, what is Scott Walker doing now that he still has a little bit of time left as governor? Well, he's going to likely be signing a reform package into law that will be stripping power away from the governor and putting it in the hands of the state's Republican-controlled legislature. It's basically an undemocratic slap in the face to the people who clearly weren't happy with Scott Walker's union-busting policies. And he's saying, oh, well, you don't like me? Well, guess what? Fuck you, because we still have Republicans in control of the state assembly and the Senate, and we're going to give them the power and not the governor who you just elected. So for more details on this, we go to Kevin Robillard of HuffPost, who explains one part of the package would prohibit municipalities from allowing more than two weeks of early voting that presumably would cut down on voter turnout, which generally helps Republicans. Other provisions would give the legislature full control of state economic development development agency block the governor's ability to write regulations and allow the legislature to hire its own lawyers to file lawsuits on behalf of the state. Walker, who narrowly lost to Evers, is expected to sign the package into law. Democrats are already threatening to fight the measures in court. We will actively be looking at either to litigate or do whatever else in our power to make sure the people of Wisconsin are represented at the table, Evers told reporters on Tuesday, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He and the other newly elected Democrats take office in early January. One change Republicans had considered wasn't included in the final package, scheduling the state's presidential primary for March instead of its current date in April. The GOP had hoped to separate it from the state Supreme Court election that is also on the April ballot. That likely would have resulted in a lower turnout for the April vote, presumably helping a conservative judge seeking re-election. Critics have portrayed the GOP efforts as a betrayal of November's election results in which Democrats won not only the governorship but other key statewide offices that Republicans had held. What didn't flip was Republican control of the state Senate and Assembly, thanks in part to the gerrymandered nature of the legislative districts. As an example, the GOP retained a supermajority in the Assembly despite winning a minority of the overall votes cast in those races. That is some really authoritarian shit there. More people vote for a specific party, yet that other party not only still defeats the party that got more votes, but they hold a supermajority. So, it's official. Scott Walker is America's biggest sore loser. I mean, this is exactly what this is. Because he's a coke shill, and he was sent there to do the Koch brothers' bidding, and the bidding of the Republican Party's donors. And that's exactly what he's been doing. It's why he's been so relentless in busting up unions. So, what we're seeing here is him kind of doing what he can with what little power he still has to kneecap the agenda of his successor to make sure that all of the Orwellian extremist right-wing reforms that he put in place as governor 
won't get overturned by Tony Evers and to make sure that Republicans will still be in control of the state by and large if their governor has less power. I mean, this is some really Machiavellian bullshit that we're seeing right here. It's disgusting. And really, this should be a national story. And think about some of the things here that they're trying to do. I mean, if you just go through some of the reforms package, it's broader than what's um, being talked about in this article here, but they're doing things to try to cut down on voter turnout by reducing the time for early voting. They were considering moving the Supreme Court election to a different month than the presidential primary in order to make sure that turnout wouldn't hurt the conservative judges currently in office seeking re-election. I mean, this is absolutely undemocratic and disgusting. They're not really even trying to hide the fact that they're against democracy. They're just wearing it on their sleeves here. They're saying, yeah, I know that you're disappointed, with what we did, but um, that's too bad. We're going to do it anyway. We're going to make sure that your new governor is not going to have the power to do anything because one, we still got Republicans in control of the legislature, and two, the current governor, you know, this lame duck session governor is going to do what he can to fuck over his successor. I mean, how dirty is that? And again, I just, I cannot get over the fact that the party who got less votes will hold a supermajority. This is not a democracy that we live in, ladies and gentlemen. This is a joke. We're not a democracy because we're not representing the will of the people when we elect people who are supposed to do that. And additionally, the votes that we're casting are not producing the results that are even remotely proportional. I mean, it's bad enough that we have an electoral system where it's winner-take-all. So even if it's the case that um, a candidate gets 51% of the vote, they still get 100% of the seats in that particular district. There's no, you know, proportional distribution of seats. It's not, well, this party got 30% of the vote, so they get 30% of the seats. That's not the way that our country functions. And additionally, when you see things like this with gerrymandering, that is now effectively rigging races for Republicans to where they can still get less votes and have a supermajority that is fundamentally undemocratic, and I don't know how else to describe the situation. And that, in addition with the fact that the person who's president got less votes, three million less votes specifically than his opponent, it's an abomination. We are a joke, and people like to say we're the oldest democracy in the world. We're not the oldest democracy in the world. You don't get to say that we are a democracy when we considered human beings three-fifths of a person and didn't allow them to vote, when we didn't allow women to vote, when we still haven't enfranchised felons across the country. We're not a democracy yet. And certainly, you know, citizens have a considerable amount of sway over the electoral process and the democratic process, certainly when juxtaposed with authoritarian regimes. But certainly, to say we could do better is the understatement of the century. And this is just embarrassing. You know, these Republicans are so relentless. They don't care how bad it looks. I mean, Scott Walker, he's at the end of his ropes in terms of his career. He knows he's probably done with public office. So the public perception doesn't matter. It's never really mattered to him, quite frankly. But now he really can shun voters and give them the finger because he's probably going to go work in the private sector. I'm sure the Koch brothers will have some positions for him. Maybe he'll be a lobbyist, but he doesn't care. And he's just, he's doing what he can to spit in the faces of every single voter who 
made their voices heard and made it clear that they disapprove of the Republican Party in Wisconsin's agenda. So it's absolutely despicable. And even if you're leaving and you don't care and you have senior-itis, you know, and you're, you're going to be done soon, don't you just care about democracy? I mean, these people don't have principles. They don't think that there's inherent value within just the democratic process in and of itself. They don't care. It's all about power. It's all about money. And that's all they care about. And it's really sad. And this is just a microcosm of what we're seeing, you know, on a national level. This is how the collective Republican Party, at least elected Republicans, view democracy. They don't just not care about democracy. It's not like they're only ambivalent, but they're openly hostile towards democracy now. Wisconsin is an example of this, and also Georgia is a brazen example of this, with an election essentially being stolen from Stacey Abrams. So the Republican Party, it's not like they could even be reformed. They have to collapse because that is how toxic they are. Speaking at the United Nations recently, CNN's Mark Lamont Hill spoke out on behalf of Palestinians and he boldly and passionately advocated for Palestinian human rights. And when I watched the speech, it was about 20 minutes long, I had no doubt that it was probably one of the best speeches I've heard an American give when it comes to this issue. I think it's going to go down as one of the best speeches in history. So I'll link you to the full speech down below. But for now, here's a clip of what he had to say. So as we stand here on the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the tragic commemoration of the Nekbe, we have an opportunity to not just offer solidarity in words, but to commit to political action, grassroots action, local action, and international action that will give us what justice requires. And that is a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Thank you for your time. So that was absolutely a powerful speech. And it gave me chills listening to him talk about something that really it shouldn't be this controversial but because of politics and money this is something that's incredibly controversial you just can't say things like this in america and not be penalized for it and that he was because as you all probably have heard by now mark lamont hill was fired from cnn because of that speech they fired him. And they claim that they were justified in doing so because what he said there was anti-Semitic. Now, if you listen to what he has to say, he is not anti-Semitic. He's not speaking in a way that suggests he's anti-Semitic. He's simply saying we need to support Palestinians and human rights and their dignity as human beings. But as usual, because he dared to talk about Palestinian human rights, he was called an anti-Semite, and CNN fired him for that. Now, he responded on Twitter saying, I support Palestinian freedom. I support Palestinian self-determination. I am deeply critical of Israeli policy and practice. I do not support anti-Semitism, killing Jewish people, or any of the other things attributed to my speech. I have spent my life fighting these things. And I think that... That was obvious. I mean, all of us 
who are speaking out on behalf of Palestine and Palestinians, we're against anti-Semitism as well. It's not even a question. Now, a reason why what he said is drawing criticism is because of a specific line he used, quote, river to the sea. That comment was apparently controversial because it's something that Hamas likes to say. Now, even if it's the case that Palestinians have been saying that since before Hamas was formed, they found a way to link him to Hamas by saying that. And here's how he responds. My reference to river to the sea was not a call to destroy anything or anyone. It was a call for justice, both in Israel and in the West Bank slash Gaza. The speech very clearly and specifically said those things. No amount of debate will change what I actually said or what I meant. And finally, he states, this isn't a case of throwing rocks and hiding hands. I genuinely believe in the arguments and principles that I shared in the speech. I also genuinely want peace, freedom, and security for everyone. These are not competing ideals and values. And that's exactly it. We're speaking out on behalf of Palestinians because that's what's right. He's speaking out on behalf of Palestinians. And he's holding strong because he knows in his heart that that's what's right. And it is right. Anti-Semitism is not acceptable, and marginalization of Palestinians is also not acceptable. Stripping them of rights and humanity in Gaza and the West Bank is not acceptable. But, of course, it's always misconstrued, and it gets reduced down to a debate about whether or not someone is anti-Semitic or not. And anti-Semitism is a serious issue, especially in 2018. And I think that we need to go out of our way to condemn it and speak out against hatred of Jewish people around the world. I think that's, it makes me sick. Anti-Semitism makes me sick. But what also makes me sick is Palestinians being subjugated to not even second-class citizens, to them being locked in the biggest open-air prison in the world. We speak out because we care about the rights of all human beings. Those who are speaking out in favor of Palestinians are also against anti-Semitism. And of course, I shouldn't have to explain this, but you have to explain this when policymakers are trying to look for reasons to demonize people who dare speak out in favor of Palestinian human rights. And I do want to share what Cornell, Cornell West had to say because, as usual, he worded this whole conversation in a way that's concise and poignant we've got to stand with uh my dear brother mark all he's saying is is that a uh, palestinian baby has exactly the same value as a jewish baby a jewish baby has the same value as a palestinian baby if we can't have an egalitarian understanding of what it is for people that have to struggle under ugly occupation on the one hand and folk who themselves have been hated and despised, but have a responsibility to treating other people with dignity, in this case, Palestinians. And uh, to the degree to which we, we still are unable to have that kind of public dialogue, recognizing humanity on both sides, is the degree to which we find ourselves in poverty. So I want to stand very, very closely and intensely with my dear brother, Mark. Yeah, I second everything he said. We have to stand with Mark Lamont Hill because what he did was courageous. It doesn't seem like just simply saying something that should be common sense, that Palestinians deserve human rights and equal rights. That shouldn't be controversial, but 
it is that's a fact of reality it's controversial in this day and age and him being fired for saying something cnn deemed anti-semitic or controversial when he didn't even say it on their network that sends a very clear message to other pundits if you dare to criticize israel in any way possible it doesn't even matter if you're doing it at the behest of palestinians who don't have a voice we're still gonna fire you so if you're in the media don't you dare speak up or you will be punished i mean it's a disgusting move from cnn i don't know how else to put it what are palestinians supposed to do like that's just the question that i want to ask people who are so overtly pro-israel and you're never allowed to criticize israel at all even if you're criticizing the government and not the jewish people but my question to them is what are palestinians supposed to do if they protest you claim that they're being violent and they get shot and killed so protesting the democratic method isn't working so if they try to go for a political method and call for boycott divestment and sanctions then that gets smeared as anti-semitic as well and we have lawmakers in the united states like ben Cardin literally proposing bills to make advocacy for bds illegal which is the definition of a violation of the first amendment so they can't call for bds they can't protest and peacefully demonstrate what are they supposed to do if they can't do anything then that falls on us to speak up for them since they don't have a voice and they're being silenced but when we speak up then this is what happens people like mark lamont hill who boldly advocated for what we all should be advocating for human rights for palestinians he gets fired by cnn unbelievable if you are in favor of the apartheid state of israel and think that they can do no wrong when their right-wing government is a war criminal i mean their prime minister is a war criminal and their right-wing government is doing everything in their power to further marginalize palestinians i don't know what to say you're on the wrong side of history and if you can't see that right now then maybe we shouldn't take you seriously because you probably would have been the individuals who were against civil rights in the 60s you maybe would have been on the wrong side of history back in the day when we were fighting to stop slavery i mean we shouldn't take you seriously because if you can't see how history is repeating itself here then i don't take you seriously you're not a serious person and either you have cognitive dissonance that's stopping you from seeing the reality of the situation but the fact remains palestinians are suffering and those who are speaking out are heroes but in america we demonize those people so credit to mark lamont hill because what he did here was brave i'm sure he was aware of the fact that he might be penalized but he did it anyway because that's what you do when you believe in things when you're principled when you care about other people and their suffering the whispers surrounding the 2020 presidential election are beginning to get louder and louder and louder with each passing week because presidential prospects who will most likely be running are kind of giving us signals that they will soon be announcing their campaigns and i fully expect most of the people who have already decided that they're going to be running 
to announce within the first quarter of 2019 because these people are doing things more and more that lead us to believe that they're gearing up already. So, for example, Bernie Sanders held a town hall on climate change, and as Alexander Kaufman of HuffPost puts it, it was powerful enough to kind of give him the edge over all of his other opponents because he's taking climate change more seriously than anyone else in the 2020 field up until this point. And then you have Kamala Harris anticipating just how ugly the Democratic Party primary will be. And of course, Joe Biden also reminded all of us about just how qualified he is to be president, as if that's something that Americans care about as a reality television star occupies the White House. But nonetheless, you know, regardless of what you think of them, these people are all clearly gearing up. And I think at this point, it's safe to say that there's a number of people that are just guaranteed to be running. Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, of course, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, kind of an open question, but I'm leaning towards she's probably going to run. But someone who was definitely an open question up until this point, who I'd put in the, you know, 50-50 chance of running category would be Beto O'Rourke. Because during his Senate bid to um, unseat Ted Cruz, he made it very clear. He explicitly said, I will not be running for president in 2020. But just, I think, immediately, like within the next day or so after he lost, he was already changing his tune, talking about how, you know, Amy and I, we're just not going to rule anything out at this point. And now he did something that pretty much confirms to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's definitely running. He kissed the ring of the former Democratic Party president, Barack Obama. This is something that other presidential hopefuls have done, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So Beto O'Rourke met with Obama, and that's not necessarily what the story is about. What the story is about is Obama's impression of Beto O'Rourke, because what Obama says specifically about him makes it very clear that we've got to steer clear from Beto, because... He really is the white Obama. Even Obama is seeing it. And we've got some footage, I believe, from their meeting. I don't know what you see, but what I see is me. I see me too. Wow. There really is two of us. There really is two of us. <laughs> I don't know why that's what I thought of um, when I read this article, but nonetheless, here's how their meeting went. Tessa Stewart of Rolling Stone reports a week and a half after narrowly losing the closely watched Texas Senate race, the soon-to-be ex-congressman from El Paso met with the ex-president at Obama's office in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post reports. Obama must have liked what he heard because at a live podcast taping four days after their November 16th meeting, he told his former strategist David Axelrod that O'Rourke was a very impressive young man who reminded him of himself. The reason I was able to make a connection with a sizable portion of the country was because people had a sense that I said what I meant, Obama told Axelrod. What I oftentimes am looking for first and foremost is, do you seem to mean it? Are you in this thing because you have a strong set of convictions that you are willing to risk things for? The former president added, what I liked most about his race was that it didn't feel constantly poll tested. It felt as if he based his statements and his positions on what he believed and that you'd like to think is normally how things work. Sadly, it's not. Obama is not the only one who sees the similarities. A week and a half after the reported Obama-O'Rourke summit, 
Dan Pfeiffer, who served as a senior advisor to Obama, published The Case for Beto O'Rourke on the website of Crooked Media, which was co-founded with three other ex-administration officials. Not only does O'Rourke, a friend of the podcast, remind him of his old boss, Pfeiffer wrote that in certain respects, he outshines him. I have never seen a Senate candidate, including Obama in 2004, inspire the sort of enthusiasm that Beto did in his race, Pfeiffer wrote. This is about more than LeBron wearing a Beto hat or Beyonce sporting one on Instagram. It's about the people all over the country with no connection to Texas, with signs in their yards and stickers on their cars. It's about the hundreds of thousands of people across the country who gave small dollar donations because they were inspired by his candidacy and moved by his pledge to to not take pack money. The enthusiasm is real and matters. If Beto were to go to Iowa City next week, I am confident he would draw a crowd three times larger than any candidate has since Obama first stumped there. So as I read through this, I'm just, I, I'm tempted to bang my fucking head against the desk here. Not really, but it's so frustrating because what he's describing here conveniently ignores something remarkable that happened in 2016. There was another candidate that inspired people across the country that got them to register and vote for the first time that got them to send in millions upon millions of dollars in small donations. That person is Bernie Sanders, but they're conveniently ignoring Bernie Sanders. And their silence on Bernie is deafening because it's not as if they're unaware of Bernie Sanders. These are ex-Obama administration officials. They have a political podcast. Odds are they know about Bernie Sanders, but they're choosing to ignore Bernie Sanders and pretend as if all of that momentum we saw was all in our heads. It was just a dream. Beto is the one who's doing what Obama did, not Bernie Sanders. It's beyond frustrating to me and it makes it clear that all of these pundits are just democratic party hacks they see what they want to see and they refuse to acknowledge the reality of the situation there's already a candidate that has enthusiasm that walks into high schools and is welcomed as if he's a fucking rock star and that person is bernie not beto Beto is someone who, while up against Ted Cruz, we all supported, but against Bernie? <laughs> Obama said, the reason I was able to make a connection with a sizable portion of the country was because people had the sense that I said what I meant. So presumably he thinks that Beto has the sense that he says what he means as well. We have the sense that they're saying what they mean. And certainly, you know, as a young voter voting for the first time, I did have the sense that Obama was saying things that he really felt strongly about. But of course, that wasn't the case. He betrayed all of us. He disappointed an entire generation who voted for the first time and believed in him. Would I have even voted had it not been for Obama? I mean, probably, but it's questionable. I don't know what I would have done back then, but certainly I wasn't as interested in politics. But because of Obama, I got involved because he said something that made sense. He made it seem as if 
He really wasn't going to do politics as usual. So it doesn't mean anything to me if I get the, quote, sense that someone like Beto O'Rourke means what they say. His actions are what matter to me. And Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk just did a fantastic video explaining why Beto is not the real deal when it comes to progressivism. First of all, he has not co-sponsored H.R. 676, the Medicare for All bill. He has not co-sponsored it. He's refused to co-sponsor that, saying that he doesn't like that bill, but maybe if he would have, you know, won against Ted Cruz, he would have co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' bill, which doesn't even make sense because they're fairly similar. And really, if you want Medicare for All and want it to be effective and the best it could be, H.R. 676 is the gold standard. So to say, oh, well, I like Bernie's bill better, that doesn't really even make sense. The differences aren't large enough, really, to make you not want to support one but the other. I think he was just kind of giving himself an out. Additionally, he voted to deregulate Wall Street. He voted to fast-track the TPP. His actions are what I care about, not what he says anymore, because Obama proved to us that you can't just take a politician at their word. The only person in the 2020 race that has decades of them doing and saying the same thing is Bernard Sanders. Nobody else. So for Obama to say, you know, he kind of sees himself in Beto, that tells me everything I need to know. Because Obama is a very intelligent individual. Do you think he's not privy to the fact that he disappointed his progressive base? He acknowledged that he was essentially governing as a moderate Republican. He acknowledged this. So he is absolutely privy to the fact that we're disappointed in him. He knows about the enthusiasm and momentum surrounding Bernie Sanders, but he sees Beto in himself because he thinks, oh, this is someone who's another bullshitter, who's charismatic, who's going to say one thing and then get in office and do the other thing, who's going to be a neoliberal just like me. Maybe to a lesser extent than Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, but certainly still doing neoliberal policies. So the fact that Obama is excited about Beto O'Rourke and Obama is an establishment figure, that tells me everything that I need to know. But I think it's obvious that Obama is going to back his boy Biden if Biden chooses to run, which I think that is almost certainly going to be the case. But just what he's saying about Beto O'Rourke here, the fact that he seems like he says what he means, and I know that I'm kind of overanalyzing that statement, but I don't give a flying fuck if it seems like you say what you mean and how authentic and genuine you seem. I care about your actions. Beto's actions, they're worrisome. They're absolutely worrisome. And he's not the real deal. Listen, people, we cannot fuck this up. Donald Trump is the president. If he gets four more years, think about the negative ramifications of that. How many more Supreme Court seats will he get? think that that is four more guaranteed years of not just inaction on climate change but going backwards we've got one chance we can't fuck this up bernie is the only person who has the best chance at beating trump and we've got to be realistic here bernie sanders i think has the best chance but an incumbent president donald trump will be more difficult to defeat than 2016 candidate donald trump because incumbent presidents 
always have that advantage because voters typically when they see change the prospect of change scares them so they usually go with what they know rather than something that they don't know that could be potentially scary so we're gonna have to work so hard even if bernie sanders is the is the uh nominee but if he's not if Democrats put up some corporate Democrat, I mean, I think we still have a good chance, but do we have to work harder than we would as if, you know, Bernie were the, was the nominee? Definitely. So we need to do what we can to put up the strongest candidate. I'm going to use the same argument that Hillary Clinton supporters made in 2016. If you want to beat the Republicans, you've got to go with the strongest candidate. And I have no doubt in my mind that that person is Bernie Sanders. So if you want to defeat Trump, I suggest you back Bernie Sanders during the primary. Because not only is he the best when it comes to policy, but strategically, he's the Democrats' best bet at defeating Trump in 2020. Since bureaucratic agents are unelected government officials, there has to be some type of democratic process so that way we're able to voice our opinions when they propose sweeping regulatory changes that affect our daily lives. They're supposed to present it to the public and then allow the public to comment for a period of time before ultimately voting on it. Now, when it comes to the issue of net neutrality, we've talked about this multiple times, but the entire process was flawed from the very beginning because there were fraudulent comments using our identities, using the identities of fictional characters to submit anti-net neutrality comments at the behest of internet service providers. Now, because the process was flawed, because we weren't able to effectively make our voices heard, this is one of the many reasons why we all are arguing that the repeal of net neutrality was illegitimate. And I think this is part of the argument that 22 attorneys generals are using in their lawsuit against the FCC. The problem is that the FCC hasn't really acknowledged that the process itself was compromised in any meaningful way. I speculated that maybe it was a troll farm that was, uh, you know, paid by internet service providers. I, I have no idea. Um, Jessica Rosenworcel, who's an FCC commissioner, states that this was Russian interference, presumably what I'm thinking is a Russian troll farm. And today we finally are seeing Ajit Pai acknowledge that yes, the comment process was in fact compromised and i'll tell you why his acknowledgement is important for us but let me get to the story first before we talk about it any further so as andrew wyrich of the daily dot reports federal communications chairman ajit pai said it was a fact that there was russian interference in the public comments ahead of its controversial net neutrality vote last year amid sparring between another commissioner about a lawsuit the agency is in the midst of the admittance was made in response to a lawsuit filed by the New York Times who requested access to records surrounding the public comments that they argued would shed light to the extent to which Russian nationals and agents of the Russian government have interfered with the agency notice and comment process about a topic of extensive public interest. The public comments left ahead of the FCC's net neutrality vote have been at the center of much scrutiny with millions of fraudulent comments, including the name 
names of dead people and current members of Congress being used. One recent study recently found that of the real comments, nearly 100% were made in favor of the FCC keeping the existing net neutrality rules. The Times used the Freedom of Information Act to request access to server logs and IP addresses. As part of the lawsuit, the FCC released a memorandum opinion earlier this week, arguing in favor of its decision to use FOIA exemptions to block part of the newspaper's request. Both Pai, a Republican, and FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, a Democrat, attached opinions to the memorandum. Rosenworcel came out hard against the FCC in her statement, starting it by asking what the FCC was hiding as part of its defense against the FOIA request. As many as 9.5 million people had their identities stolen and used to file fake comments, which is a crime under both federal and state laws, she wrote. Nearly 8 million comments were filed from email domains associated with fakemailgenerator.com. On top of this, roughly half a million comments were filed from Russian email addresses. Something here is rotten, and it's time for the FCC to come clean. In his response, Pai says it is a fact that some of the comments were submitted using Russian email addresses, but argues many of those comments supported net neutrality. The fact comment, as Gizmodo points out, is different than what was said in a court filing related to the lawsuit where the FCC claims it is not convinced of Russian interference. So this is interesting because we're kind of seeing conflicting claims come from the FCC, but here he's admitting, yes, it is a fact that there was Russian interference. And part of the reason why he says that he's blocking these FOIA requests is because if he approves these FOIA requests, that would make the FCC susceptible to cyber attacks, which doesn't really make any sense to me because FOIA is just what you have to do if you are in charge of an agency. All government agencies have to respond to FOIA requests. That doesn't necessarily make them more vulnerable to cyber attacks. So I don't even think that that argument makes sense. But nonetheless, he's confirming here what we already knew, that the comment process was in fact compromised. And what's interesting to me is that he can't really deny this anymore because there's evidence that it was from Russians. Apparently, Russian email addresses were used in a number of these uh, comments that were filed, because if you want to file a comment, you have to supply them with an email address, and these came from Russian accounts. Now, my speculation is that this came from a Russian troll farm, maybe the same type of troll farm or one related to the memes that we saw posted during the 2016 election. That wouldn't surprise me at all, but the point is that we don't necessarily know, we don't know the extent to which... Russian meddling occurred. We don't know if that was the only meddling. Maybe it was also industry insiders like I also speculated. The point is that we need an investigation to get to the bottom of it. That's what we've been saying is that we need to know what happened, but they wouldn't even acknowledge it, let alone allow for an investigation. But here we have Ajit Pai saying, yeah, it was a fact that there was Russian interference. So this is a positive step in the right direction for advocates of net neutrality because this kind of strengthens our argument because we're trying to make a legal case in court for why Ajit Pai's repeal of net neutrality was not just undemocratic, but it was also illegitimate and flawed because he wasn't able to adequately gauge public opinion because that comment process, which bureaucrats are required to take into consideration when voting on new legislation or regulatory changes rather 
was not able to give him an accurate gauge of what the public was feeling with regard to this issue. So I hope that this will help strengthen our case, at least legally. It certainly doesn't bode well for Ajit Pai when it comes to public opinion, but I don't think he really cares at this point because it's already in the gutter and it's not going to be something that recovers. As I've said before, I've said it before this video, but I'm repeating it here because I think this is really important. We need an investigation to get to the bottom of it. But since that didn't happen, since the FCC refuses to investigate what happened, since they're refusing to comply with numerous FOIA requests, I think that well, I feel as if, and I'm not sure because I'm no legal expert, I feel as if we've got to have a really strong legal argument in court. I mean, there's already precedent where when um, the industry attacked the FCC's 2015 adoption of Title II, it held up in court and the Supreme Court just rejected hearing them out. So there's already this precedent set where our legal system upholds net neutrality. And I'm just hoping that this all bolsters our case legally but again i don't know and i don't necessarily have that much faith in the american legal system at this point but it's literally our only hope because the deadline for congress to act and restore net neutrality is approaching um on december 10th i believe and after that we no longer can pursue you know um a nullification of the fcc's repeal of title ii through congress I mean, they could still pass a bill technically and override the FCC, but that's a lot more difficult to do than just simply signing on to a joint resolution and passing it through the Congressional Review Act. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen and how this will play out. But one thing that I do know is our only hope of saving net neutrality is going to come from the courts. And I really hope that Ajit Pai admitting this here is going to strengthen our argument because we, we've got to have net neutrality because... A free and open internet is absolutely crucial for a democracy in the 21st century. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the show. As usual, we can't end without giving a special shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to not just survive, but thrive as well. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. If you're on iTunes or SoundCloud, I'm Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Take care.